Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland. This week, we're talking about how Facebook is on the hot seat with Congress. Then, we ask a big question. Have the national parties lost their mojo in the 2018 midterms? You're not going to want to miss that. Plus, a couple of quick questions and answers about what we learned from this week's primary in Illinois. But with a twist, the questions are going to come from the Politico audience, and I'm going to try to answer a few of them. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. We're going to read a listener review at the end of the show, and it's kind of hilarious, so stick around. And one last note before we begin. We're taping this segment a little bit before noon Eastern time on Thursday, March 22nd, so it's all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. First-time Nerdcast guest, Politico White House reporter Matt Nussbaum. Hey, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. And hello to senior technology reporter Nancy Scola. Hey, Nancy. Hey, Charlie. Nancy, I never asked you this. Where are you from? Uh, New Jersey. New Jersey. The great state of New Jersey. Hey, Matt, are you a Pennsylvania guy? I'm a New Jersey guy as well. Oh, South right. Jersey, though. Oh. South Jersey? I'm from uh, North Jersey. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I feel bad for you guys. I mean, I, I feel like you're <laughs> wonderful people, but uh, you're not from Pennsylvania, so let's move on. Okay, let's get on to our first data point. 50 million. That's the estimated number of Facebook users whose data ended up in the hands of a political research firm linked to Donald Trump's campaign. Nancy, I want to start with you. Let's lay out the story from the beginning for someone who maybe hasn't been playing all that much close attention but knows that this whole Facebook thing is a big deal. Okay, for sure. So uh, the news that broke over the weekend was that a firm called Cambridge Analytica uh, that you mentioned that has been linked to the Trump campaign had gotten his hands on 50 million uh, records of presumably American voters, although we don't know for sure. We just know it's 50 million uh, Facebook users. Uh, And they got that through a researcher at Cambridge University who ran a personality-based quiz on Facebook that people tend to take on Facebook for reasons that aren't clear to me. Uh, And he passed that on to the company, and the company then used it for data targeting in their political work. And so Facebook has been, what, totally transparent and honest uh, <laughs> and straightforward in <laughs> they, their response? So the, the, uh, Facebook is under considerable, considerable criticism for this. Uh, a big part of it is that they didn't keep their hands on the data and then ended up in the hands of a company that uh, didn't have a right to it. Uh, the other thing that they're being criticized for is that they knew about this in 2015. Uh, and if you run the numbers, that was quite a few years ago. And they haven't told anyone until they were sort of uh, forced to because it was going to be reported on. And so I know lots of members of Congress have, have responded very strongly on this. What what does Congress say about all this? So this is the um, this this sort of uh, most recent blow to Facebook came after a long uh, list of things that people were upset about, uh, particularly related to the Russia investigation, the uh, the the role of so-called fake news on Facebook that people might have consumed during the election, how that might have uh, swayed the results of the election. So this was sort of the latest thing that Congress was mad about. They were already demanding sort of bring me the head of Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg, who's the chief operating officer. They wanted them. To to come testify on Capitol Hill about their role in the election. 
the uh, couple committees call, excuse me called hearings a couple months back, and the companies, not just Facebook but uh, Google and Twitter too, sent their top lawyers, uh, which didn't go over great with members of Congress. Uh, they felt like they were being stonewalled. Uh, so now the focus is entirely on Facebook, and several members of Congress, mostly Democrats, are demanding that the uh, that Zuckerberg himself appear and testify. So Congress felt dissed that they sent lawyers instead of the principals themselves. Is yeah, you can imagine some. You know, the chairs of the Senate Intelligence Committee, or uh, you know, some of the bigger committees on the Hill, didn't love that the you know Facebook said our the peers that we're going to send to sit before you all are our lawyers, not uh, our top executives. I see. So Matt, what does the White House have to say here? I know you wrote about how they're using a very familiar tactic and how they're responding. Right. We're sort of seeing the same playbook that we saw for Paul Manafort and for George Papadopoulos, which is this, we hardly knew him defense. Uh, everyone knows Cambridge Analytica was, was a major player during the campaign. We were talking about them during the campaign, but a, a Trump campaign official who I spoke with earlier this week, who interestingly enough, didn't want to be named, uh, said that they have no existing contracts with Cambridge Analytica. They have no plans to have any contracts with them going forward. And during the campaign, they didn't use any of Cambridge's data. They only used RNC data, and all they got from Cambridge was limited staffing. But it, wait a minute. I thought I remember reading a Forbes article and uh, <laughs> trying to understand what happened in the election. I thought I remember reading a, a Forbes article where Jared Kushner was talking about all the uh, bells and whistles and cutting edge uh, data that they got from Cambridge Analytica. That's right. Mr. Kushner, uh, with some post-election swagger, uh, w- when he appeared on the Forbes cover, d- did a long interview with them. And in quotes that Forbes only just uh, published this week, he talked about sort of the money ball approach they took to the election and talked about this firm that they brought in called Cambridge Analytica. And Cambridge's now suspended CEO, Alexander Nix, told an undercover reporter over in the UK that we did pretty much everything for the campaign. Quote, we did all the research, all the data, all the analytics, all the targeting. So you take uh, that line coming from folks at Cambridge and folks who are on the campaign and compare it to what the Trump folks are saying now, and there's a little bit of discrepancy. But like we said, they, uh, they've used this before. Paul Manafort, only on the campaign a short period of time. George Papadopoulos, nothing but a coffee boy. This is their go-to defense. And of course, they're both under indictment uh, at the moment. Right. Well, let me ask you then about uh, another aspect of this. So the White House is obviously under siege on all fronts. Where does this rate in terms of, say, the flop sweat factor over at the White House? You know, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is this from their perspective? I think as of right now, not so bad. Uh, I think Stormy Daniels is probably at the top of that scale. I think anything involving Robert Mueller, which th- there is a Cambridge Analytica component to, to that. We know Robert Mueller's requested uh, documents that involve them. But I think as long as Stormy Daniels is in the news, uh, as long as there are potential indictments coming down the pike, I think the Cambridge situation is a little less concerning for them. But as anyone knows who's followed the news cycle in the last year or two, that can change on a dime, and Cambridge could be the biggest story that everyone's talking about, depending what comes out next. So I think one of the uh, one of the ways this potentially has uh, create some angst amongst folks in the White House and around the Trump campaign is that it kind of gets at the central uh, worry of President Trump himself is that he's an illegitimate president. So if the election were gamed uh, to to make him president, and the use of Facebook has always been sort of central to their self-description of how he became president, right? They were so great at reaching out directly to American voters. They were able to speak their language to get 
get at their hopes and fears and dreams. And if that were being controlled in some way, either by, you know, Russian elements or was in some way was otherwise being manipulated by Cambridge Analytica, who had access of data they shouldn't have had ac- access to, it sort of calls into question the legitim- le- legitimacy of his, uh, of his uh, position in the White House. So I think potentially it could. I think you're right at this point, it's pretty wonky in the weeds, but it could get at that sort of central worry uh, down the pike. Well, one name that hasn't come up that I've been waiting for, and maybe I'm just missing this. You guys can correct me on this. But I haven't seen Brad Parscale's name come up. And, and he is often credited as, you know, the data genius behind the campaign. He ran Trump's digital efforts. And, you know, what's always amazed me is, you know, so much of that campaign success was driven by the digital arm. We, we would later learn. Yet he was not even a political guy before it started. He was, what, a commercial marketer who ended up running this campaign that we're now trying to figure out what it was doing because it apparently was so sophisticated or advanced. Where is he in all this or is he present at all? I think there have been some initial attempts to get some information out of him by the congressional committees that are looking into the role of Russia in the election. Uh, I think they're frustrated with what he's provided uh, so far and that people are uh, curious about what he has to say about this. But I mean, he's, as we know, he's the campaign manager now heading into 2020. So what he knew uh, and how involved he was with this is going to be important to, to come out at some point. But yeah, I'd say so far he's sort of remained clean in this whole thing. And I think if I can just weigh in... What the trajectory that he has had in politics is pretty remarkable. When you think about it, I think he came into the Trump organization working on a website for the Trump winery, uh, and now a couple of years later ended up as as uh, as was mentioned as the uh, the campaign director for the president of the United States reelection campaign, which is pretty pretty amazing to sit and watch. And as somebody who's covered sort of digital politics for a long time, the fight always has been to get the people that run the digital wings of these campaigns into the room, sitting at the principal's table, making decisions. And the Trump campaign just sort of skipped over that step and made the digital director their campaign manager. It's pretty remarkable. It's irony piled on irony. <laughs> so so let's step back for a second because I feel like we're giving pay- Facebook a pass here. And ultimately, to me at least, the scandal is not about the Trump campaign so much as it is about Facebook and its response and its uh, lack of transparency. So, Nancy, can you talk a little bit about Facebook's relationship with uh, Washington and with regulators and with politicians. It's evolved over the years, particularly Absolutely. since 2016. So Facebook has long been a darling of, of Washington, uh, even, uh, excuse me, particularly Democratic Washington. Uh, there's a remarkable event that happened in 2011 where President then President Obama participated in a town hall that was moderated by Mark Zuckerberg, um, hosted by the White House and moderated by CEO, uh, Facebook CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. It was very chummy. They joked about, you know, taking their coats off because Mark Zuckerberg was Zuckerberg was uncomfortable in his suit jacket and Obama sort of played along with that. Uh, my name is Barack Obama and I'm the guy who got Mark to wear a jacket and tie. Uh, it was a bit of a love fest. And to see that trajectory where now you have former President Obama talking about Facebook uh, needing to reexamine its role in society and maybe it's sort of damaging to American society. That's a pretty remarkable trajectory. Well, what's interesting too is the hostility that uh, I'm seeing, especially on the left toward Facebook, you know, from many Democratic senators uh, in particular. There's calls to testify. And it's especially amazing when you think that not that long ago, you know, when people were drawing up their huge perspective lists, lists of prospective 2020 candidates. Uh, prominent Facebook executives, including Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, were listed on that. I mean, does this mean that uh, they're not going to be considered prospects in 2020? 
Yeah, I, I was talking to Philippe Rines, who was a close advisor to Hillary Clinton, both in the State Department and on her campaign. And he said, you know, the, he said it's it's comic now to think of them as Democratic candidates, um, Sandberg and, and Zuckerberg. And because they're going to have to get through, you know, maybe they could win in a general election, but they'd have to get through a Democratic primary. And right now we're talking about some very angry Democrats. And it's amazing they have sort of that has metastasized where people actually are thinking about Facebook as perhaps contributing to the election of Donald Trump. The Democrats are still pretty upset about what about over in the White House, Matt? Is uh, is Facebook even an issue? Do they talk about regulating Facebook or is it even on the radar there or do they just have bigger fish to fry these days? I think the folks uh, down the street from us at the White House have, have bigger fish to fry these days. I think the, the swirling controversies that are taking up so much of their time these days is Stormy Daniels, uh, non-disclosure agreements, not to mention the Russia probe and running the country. So I think a lot of the Facebook anger uh, and it is real in Washington, but it's coming from Capitol Hill and it's coming from Democrats who see this as just yet another tool uh, that's been used by by some unsavory actors to influence the election. Regulating Facebook was a pet project of Steve Bannon's, uh, but he's no longer in the White House. So you might that, have heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that guy. So does that mean uh, the White House is just not talking about regulating big tech anymore? Um, I think... Uh, I think, as Matthew mentioned, I think their focus is on other things this week, but we'll see. There hasn't been much response from them in terms of this latest crisis. Of course, as we talked about, it doesn't reflect well on them. Uh, In this case, the sort of Facebook helped Cambridge Analytica, Cambridge Analytica helped President Trump get elected. It doesn't look great for them to sort of speak out about this particular instance. I think that's right. And we've seen a wariness on their part to touch issues that do call into question his legitimacy. It's the same reason they haven't taken that seriously or haven't seemed to taken that seriously uh, election hacking and election interference. If they suddenly are very serious about Facebook and the spread of fake news, then it looks like they're accepting the premise that these activities helped elect Donald Trump. And we know that they don't like to do that. And we're seeing that play out on Capitol Hill, too. Republicans who who, who tend to not have fond feelings towards Silicon Valley are also worried about calling into question the, the, the results of the election. So they've sort of kind of walked the fence on how strongly to crack down on some of these companies. So is it fair to say then uh, if there is going to be some sort of effort to crack down on big tech and, and regulate it like utilities in some way or another, that energy is going to come from the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party? Uh, I think that's uh, most likely the case. The the interesting thing on Capitol Hill is uh, we talk a lot about Democrats perhaps taking back the House uh, in the midterms. In the long term, they might have a crack at the Senate. And the folks you hear most vocally opposed to Facebook on Capitol Hill right now are the folks that are in line to take over the committees that have oversight over Facebook, right? So intelligence, commerce, judiciary, those Democrats are the most vocally opposed to Facebook right now. So the long-term political prospects for Facebook in Washington might not be great. Well, Nancy Scola, thank you so much for taking out the time to come here. For sure. Thanks, Charlie. It's great having you. And Matt, thank you for coming here this week. Always a pleasure. Okay, now on to data point number two. One, as in... One year. That was the federal prison sentence that coal baron Don Blankenship got after an explosion at one of his mines killed 29 workers back in 2010 in West Virginia. But Blankenship is now out of prison and he's running for Senate as a Republican. And lo and behold, he's essentially tied with the other candidates in the Republican primary for the right to face Democratic incumbent Senator Joe Manchin. 
Let's talk about that race and what it says about the juice that national parties have this year. We'll talk with Politico's Alex Eisenstadt, who wrote about the West Virginia race this week. Alex, good to see you. Thanks for having me. It's your first time on Nerdcast? It is my first time on Nerdcast. It's my maiden voyage, as one would say. Are you nervous? You know, as someone who has not done this before and not knowing quite what to expect, I guess I'm uh, a little nervous. Okay, don't screw this up for us, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, so set the stage for us, Alex. Give us a little background on who Don Blankenship is and on this competitive West Virginia Senate contest. Well, it's this fascinating race that's developing in West Virginia right now where you have essentially two more establishment candidates running in the Republican primary, uh, Evan Jenkins and Patrick Morrissey. And then you have Don Blankenship, who's entered this race and is spending tons and tons and tons of his own money uh, in part to clear his name, but in, not just to clear his own name, though, it turns out he's actually running a really serious, serious race. And he's a real, as you said in your intro, he's a real serious contender to win this nomination, even despite the fact that uh, he served a year prison sentence after this, this deadly explosion at one of the mines that he owns, he owned. But here's what I don't understand. I mean, this guy is almost like, his profile at least, is yeah. almost like a movie villain, like right. Mr. Potter from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Like he is a coal right. baron and the operator of a mine, mine where 29 right. workers died. How is it that he's even, and went to prison? How right. is it that he's even in contention? Well, it, it's interesting because you talk to people in West Virginia about this, and they say that people's feelings about Blankenship are, are complex. On one hand, you have the family of the the families of the mine workers who uh, of the mine workers who died, and others, and many others in the state who who sort of see Blankenship as essentially a murderer, someone who didn't do enough to protect the employees who worked for him. On the other hand, you have people in the state who see Blankenship as really a, a someone who was a critical economic force, someone who cared about his employees, someone who provided jobs for people in what is really a very poor state. And so the feelings about Blankenship, even in the area where this mine disaster happened, the feelings about Blankenship throughout the state are actually rather complex. So Alex, in your story, you write that national Republicans think Blankenship is a sure loser. Why is that? Well, th there's a lot of concern that he – that that Joe Manchin would have a pretty easy time bringing up the mine explosion, running ads, uh, featuring families of the of, of the victims, the people who died in this blast, essentially essentially saying that Don Blankenship uh, killed their family members and that those ads would in turn be devastating. And they also worry that the National Democratic Party could somehow hang Blankenship around their necks heading into November. I can also tell you that a lot of them just simply don't like the idea of Don Blankenship being in in the Senate, much as the same way as that they, didn't, they really didn't want Roy Moore to be in the Senate. Uh, and and so that that's really a, a big dynamic here. So is, is it fair to say that Blankenship in some quarters of the Republican Party is like a pariah candidate? Well, he, he definitely is. But, but here's the question is that they just don't know. The National Party is just grappling with. They don't know how to deal with this guy. There, there really is no simple solution to this problem. If they run ads against him, if they wage some massive offensive against him, that might not work. Why? Because we saw how that played out in Alabama, right? They went they went after Roy Moore really aggressively. They dumped millions of TV ads on his head. And if anything, it turned him into something of a martyr. And I can tell you that Don Blankenship, having spoken with him, he's relishing the idea of the National Party uh, coming after him. He told me that he thought it would get him votes if that happened. And so really what everyone here in Washington, Washington Republican circles is trying to figure out is what do we do about this guy? He could spend however much money he wants. 
neither of our other candidates in this race are gaining too much traction. What do we do? And it's unclear right now. So now you've piqued my curiosity. Tell me about that conversation. What, did you reach him on a, on a cell phone or something or his office? So, so here's the interesting thing about Blankenship, which is that he wants to talk to pretty much everyone right now. He's remarkably accessible, not just with reporters, but in the state. He will go out and he will hold town halls in which he will answer questions from pretty much anyone from he will answer questions from protesters he will he is someone who wants to talk about what has happened to him and and how he would be as a senator and that's fueled a lot of talk that aside from trying to exact revenge on Joe Manchin who is kind of seen as as Blankenship's arch nemesis in a lot of ways he's running in part sort of to clear his name and so he wants to talk as much as possible so as a reporter who gets him on the phone he'll just answer whatever question you throw at him basically and what's he like is he a garrulous guy i mean what's it like to talk to him on the phone you know he's actually a lot more soft spoken than i sort of expected him to be i spoke with him one other time i think for a story that you actually assigned me probably about 8 years ago now um and I didn't quite remember that initial conversation I had with him, but I spoke with him recently for this story, and and, and he answers questions very calmly. He's very soft-spoken. He has a line of defense. He has answers for every question, and he'll answer pretty much anything you throw at him. Well, let's talk about Trump because he's cast a huge shadow over the, this race. I mean, if California is the capital of the Democratic resistance, right. you know, you could probably argue that West Virginia is the capital of Trump, Trump country. Right. What kind of role is Trump playing in the Senate race? So so right, right now, we have not heard Trump weigh in into this contest so far. Uh, we, we have not, we, you know, we have heard, however, uh, Mike Pence attacked Manchin pretty aggressively uh, recently. And it, it's clear that, that while there are a lot of Republicans who worry that Trump may be a little too nice sometimes to Joe Manchin, uh, it's pretty clear that Trump, based on the reporting I've done, Trump wants to win this race. He wants to see a Republican defeat Joe Manchin in November. But we haven't heard the White House weigh in on this primary too much yet. What I can tell you is, however, that the White House has met with all three Republican candidates, including Blankenship. And Blankenship came into the White House earlier this year. He did not meet with the president, but he met with several some, some staffers, and they were pretty impressed by him. They came away pretty impressed by his pitch, and they came away convinced that he was actually very much for real in this contest. He's also running ads. It seems uh, right. I, I haven't seen that many ads. He's the only one running ads right now, essentially, in this primary so far. Talking about wrapping his arms around Donald Trump, right? Right. He he's he's portraying himself very much as a Trump ally, and he's kind of running as this Trump esque figure. And one of the most interesting things that he's doing is, you know, a lot of what Blankenship is talking about in his ads is he, he's talking about how he was wronged by the Obama era. Uh, by, by Barack Obama and, and Joe Manchin, Hillary Clinton, who he sort of argues uh, conspired to imprison him following the mine disaster. And one of the theme, themes that he's trying to hit on is connecting himself to Donald Trump by saying, look, you have you have forces in the legal world that are both trying to uh, imprison us, that are trying to somehow um, – um, oppress us. And and so he is trying to wrap himself around Trump and tie himself to the president in a lot of different ways, which makes sense considering that uh, Trump, as you mentioned, is very popular in West Virginia. He won almost 70 percent of the vote here in 2016. When, when Blankenship is trying to portray uh, his campaign, he is running under the mantle of representing all of West Virginia, not business owners or mine operators. Just right. 
he's referring to the so-called war on coal, Absolutely, right? absolutely. He's definitely running uh, as someone who – he's definitely talking a lot about the war on coal and he's talking about someone who uh, went up against forces that were trying to wage a war on coal, which of course is an industry that's just so important to this state. Well, tell me about the relationship between Blankenship and Manchin because after all, West Virginia is a pretty small state and when you're in the political right. elite or the business elite, you probably have crossed lines with each other and everybody knows everybody. Manchin also, didn't he cut his teeth as a governor or at least gain right. national renown for the empathetic way in which he dealt with that mine disaster that Blankenship was responsible for? It, yeah. And, and, and one of the things that Manchin did uh, was he sort of threw Blankenship under the bus. He basically said in a 2014 interview, he said Blankenship has, quote, blood on his hands. And so – there really is a sense from a lot of people in West Virginia that Blankenship's Senate campaign is in part about is in part about somehow gaining getting exacting revenge on Joe Manchin. And there's a lot of suspicion among a lot of people in the state that that's really what this is about more than anything. It's not necessarily about running to uh, be an ally of Donald Trump. It's a lot of people really think this has to do with exacting revenge. On Joe Manchin. And now I, I think Blankenship sort of denies this. He says that if he really wanted to get revenge on, on Joe Manchin, there are a lot of other things he could do other than run for Senate against him. But but there's a there's a it, it's really sort of this rich backstory. Should he become the nomination that really would make this general election so interesting, I think, to see between these two men. So the Don Blankenship payback tour looks like he's going to be a top contender in the primary. What about in the general? Do we know, Have we seen any polls or like how close do people think it can be? I guess my question is, right. can he really knock off Manchin? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, so it's a great question. And there are some people who think that it he would make a real contender. I can tell you that there are a lot of other people, especially here in Washington, in the national party apparatus, who are really skeptical of that idea that Blankenship can somehow win in that race. And there are a lot of people in the party who worry that Manchin essentially is going to run ads featuring the families of those who died in this blast and that they're going to go on these TV ads and they're going to say, look, uh, Don Blankenship killed my father. He killed my husband. He's responsible for this. And, and, and so those ads have not started yet. But, but the, the worry from Republicans is that once they do start, they, they might be devastating essentially. Wow, that's uh, you know sort of an amazing set of powerful ads if they ever ever ran them. Uh, Alex, uh, thank you so much for taking out all this time. Thanks and, for having me. And how was your uh, maiden voyage on the Nerdcast? You know, it, it was good. I, I think I want to do it again if you if you'd have me. Well, we're gonna have to have some discussions <laughs> yeah. without you present, of course, <laughs> okay. and, and we'll get back to you <laughs> yeah, about <that's> that. <laughs> thank you so much. Sounds again. good. Thank you, sir. Listeners, we've got a little more to share with you about the midterms this week. As you know, Illinois had its primary this week, and I joined a bunch of political reporters and editors for a live chat on our site as the results came in, and we fielded questions from readers who asked them on Twitter with the hashtag AskPolitico. Well, we had a lot of fun doing it, uh, but we didn't get to all of them, so we figured we'd answer a few here, too. So my producer, Micaela Rodriguez, will read a couple, and I'll do my best to answer. Micaela. Thanks for suggesting the idea. It's all part of my plot to get more Pennsylvanians on the podcast. Nice. That is why you are rising so rapidly in this company. So uh, start us off. 
All right. So big picture first, as always. Uh, a Twitter user named Caitlin, she wants to know, how is turnout looking compared to the last few primaries? Well, it's much easier to answer the question now than when she asked it because we have all the, the, the numbers are in. And uh, I think what we learned from the primary uh, on the Democratic side is that Democratic energy is surging. Democratic turnout in the uh, Illinois primary was up 325,000 voters from 2010. And the reason uh, 2010 is a good uh, measuring stick is because that was the last time they had a really competitive, competitive Democratic governor's primary. Uh, and overall, turnout in Illinois was 1.92 million people, which was the highest highest for a gubernatorial primary election since 2002. All right. So easy question over. (laughs) Now we're going to go to the governor's race. The Republican incumbent squeaked by in his primary, which led to a question from J.R. Thatcher. What are the chances Rauner can win in the general? Does a close primary challenge hurt turnout from the incumbent in the general? So that's a two-parter. Okay, so I will refer you to the story we ran last night and its headline. We ran a story on our site last night titled, is Bruce Rauner toast? Uh, and the reason we ran such a provocative headline is because the outlook is so grim for Republican Governor Rauner. I mean, typically incumbents are, are kind of favored in uh, for in most races. This time, the problem is that Rauner was already widely considered to be the most vulnerable incumbent governor in the nation. That is, of all the governors running for re-election, he was the one who was thought to be the most vulnerable. And why is that? Well, he's running in a blue state. It's a really democratic state, so it's going to, it was always going to be a really tough uphill slog to re-election. Plus, he's got Donald Trump uh, serving as the backdrop, and Trump is incredibly unpopular in Illinois. So it was going to be an uphill challenge to begin, or an uphill run to begin with, and then came this primary challenge. So Governor Rauner won the other night very narrowly, but in in winning very narrowly, he showed how truly weak he was. His challenger was a little-known state legislator. He outspent her by millions and millions of dollars, uh, yet she almost upset him, but he showed weakness all across the map when you look at the voting results. And on top of all that, so he's, he's already governing in a blue state. He already has a fractured Republican uh, primary electorate. So his party's fractured. He's governing in a blue state. Now the Democrats have nominated a free-spending billionaire who is going to drop many more millions of dollars uh, on Rauner's head. And the Democrats are united behind him. So uh, this is a rare occasion where an incumbent is looking like a real long shot in November. All right, Charlie, that does it for the questions that we have this week. Well, listeners, uh, thanks so much for the questions. And keep them coming. You can always use the hashtag AskPolitico uh, on Twitter. Michaela, thanks for your help on it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our show is produced by Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez with help this week from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our researcher is Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And as I promised at the top of the show, a listener, Raul Cernuda from Miami, left us an amazing review this week. And here it is. Raul was moved to write after I recommended the movie The Deer Hunter in last week's show, only to find that our colleague, Elena Schneider, hadn't seen it and actually prefers This Is Us. Well, Raul is on my side. He says Deer Hunter is an amazing American classic. And he also said, keep up the good work on the podcast. Thanks, Raul. We'll do it. Listeners, leave us a review. And who knows, maybe we can get you a shout out. Thanks. And we'll talk again next week.